thank you very much for coming. Uh, thank you very much for coming, particularly when there are many distractions in London. For those of you who have not um, been keeping up with the news, uh, the Letwin Amendment has recently passed the House of Commons. Um, that is only one part of the, uh, the business today. But of course, the point is that whatever happens today in London, uh, whether we, uh, whether and when we vote leave, leave would be the beginning of a long journey. A long journey towards a destination which is really as yet unknown. And the point of this session today is therefore to think about some of the underlying issues, the ones that are not in the media because they're just obsessed with uh, you know, high noon in, in, in uh, Westminster and all the rest of it, but issues about identity that are fundamental to questions about Brexit. And as befits a festival ideas, we're doing this in an interdisciplinary way. So we have with us um, here uh, this afternoon, we have here a professor of contemporary literature, Bob Eagleston. Um, uh, I'll introduce him a little more fully later on. Uh, we have Ali Medji, Dr. Ali Medji, who's a lecturer in social inequalities and critical race theory. And we have Isa Zarakol, who's a, a theorist of international relations. So the point here is to bring these various points of view to bear on this question of Brexit and identity. What we're going to do, each of these um, four scholars are going to talk about these questions from their own angle for uh, eight to 10 minutes. Um, we will then have a bit of a discussion amongst ourselves about some of the issues raised, but then there will be plenty of time, ideally half an hour, for you to raise questions in an interchange between the panel and yourselves. So, um, uh, without any more ado, except to say my name is David Reynolds, I'm a professor of international history, and my interest in Brexit is that um, I've got a book coming out, which I'll talk about on the Festival Ideas on Monday, but that's a different matter. Um, so now, if we move on to Ali Medji. Ali is a lecturer in social inequalities at this university. He works particularly in critical race theory and decolonial thought. And he had a book um, out just a couple of weeks ago um, with the title Black Middle Class Britannia. Yeah. Black Middle Class Britannia. So, Ali, over to you. And you're going to talk particularly about the underpinnings of the immigration debate and how it's fed into the referendum and its, its aftermath. When I'm thinking about Brexit, there are kind of two things that I think are really important to talk about, and they both feed back into this notion of immigration. Um, we can think about them in terms of post-colonial melancholia or colonial nostalgia on the one hand and institutional racism on the other. So what I find really interesting about Brexit is that it's almost like the response to Brexit in terms of the media, the political and the academic commentators tell us more about the foundations of British society than the referendum result itself. Um, by which I mean that basically the response to Brexit shows us about British society's foundations. And there are two parts of these foundations that it's pointing us towards. Colonial nostalgia and, I thought that was mine, and the logic of white supremacy. And by white supremacy, I'm not talking about the KKK. I'm talking about the belief in the superiority 
but that may be biological or cultural, the superiority of white people. So in terms of the cultural nostalgia, <clears throat> that just, that's just a note, because some people think that white supremacy means just the KKK. So since the result in 2016 through to the present day, we consistently hear this idea that Brexit has somehow made Britain more racist. So commentators on the institutional left and the institutional right, including Boris Johnson today, which I heard on the radio on the way in, claim that Britain has now been divided for three years, so since the referendum, while others point to the rising levels of ethnic and racial violence and hate crimes post-2016. Now, of course, while we shouldn't be ignoring level, uh, rising levels of raci racist violence, it's also important not to get caught into what we think of as a presentism, so to get caught in our moment right now. Because what that does is it runs the risk of overlooking how Brexit itself represents two fundamental dynamics of British society and two fundamental dynamics that did not start in 2015 or 2016, but started hundreds of years ago, right? So if we start with this notion of colonial nostalgia, or what Paul Gilroy calls post-colonial melancholia, we see that a large part of this nostalgia and melancholia is a widespread belief or kind of an emotional feeling among British people that the British Empire was a good thing and that we ought to return to the state of affairs that were around when we had the British Empire. Um, and that Brexit can be one such process to facilitate that movement back to the glory days of Britannia. Marketing the book again. The book's not actually about this, though. Um, 40 pounds. He wants to spend 40 pounds on a book. He um, shouldn't have said that. <laughs> this is why, directly after the EU referendum result, we got MPs discussing the need to create an Empire 2.0. It's okay to leave the EU, we're gonna have Empire 2.0, we're gonna to return to the Commonwealth. I'm pretty sure no one in the Commonwealth <laughs> would welcome Britain back with open arms with Empire 2.0. While we also see keen advocates of Brexit basically hailing Britain's forthcoming emancipation from imperialism, i.e. EU-imposed imperialism, such as Anne Widdicombe uh, comparing the referendum result to slave revolts in colonialism. Um, so, of course, a large part of this colonial nostalgia involves gross misunderstandings of what the British Empire actually entailed. In particular, well, there's a million things, but one thing I want to talk about is how we don't mention how through British colonization and empire, all around the world, our histories became connected in ways that, made, that fundamentally shaped what it meant to be British. So what it meant to be British was fundamentally shaped by what they were doing overseas in the colonies and through their imperialism. So consider this quote from Stuart Hall. <coughs> I'm the sugar at the bottom of the English cup of tea. I'm the sweet tooth, the sugar plantations that rotted generations of England children's teeth. There are thousands of others beside me that are, you know, the cup of tea itself because they don't grow tea in Lancashire, you know. Not a single tea plantation exists within the United Kingdom. Yet this is a symbolization of English identity. What does anybody in the world know about an English person except that they can't get through the day without a cup of tea? <laughs> this is the outside history that is inside the history of the English. There is no English history without that other history. Now I tweeted this in um, memory of Stuart Hall's death and someone pointed out that they now grow tea in Cornwall. <laughs> but apart from that, what Stuart Hall is showing is that our histories and our identities are all interlinked across the world. However, when we see mass resistance to immigration, which was embodied in Brexit's firm commitment to end free movement, we see just how many Brits are either willfully denying 
or willfully rejecting the interconnection of our histories and identities. We are here, British, Im British immigrants say, immigrants, because most of us are actually citizens, we are here because you were there. And this is precisely where we can also see racism as being foundational to British society. Because despite what many people are saying, Britain did not suddenly become racist overnight when the EU referendum result passed. Brexit can't be about race or racism, many people say, because we are just against immigrants from the EU who are white. But if that were the case, then how come Nigel Farage decided to stand in front of this poster of Syrian refugees saying that it was one of the key reasons why we should be leaving the EU? <clears throat> why did Boris Johnson, among others, use the example of Turkey joining the EU as a key reason to leave? It was Johnson who said those two quotes. The public will draw the reasonable conclusion that the only way to avoid having common borders with Turkey is to vote leave and to take back control. And then after to the BBC, frankly, I don't mind whether Turkey joins the EU, provided the UK leaves the EU. To me, something much more is going on than a fear of having white immigrants coming into the UK. This simply reflects the point that Britain's relationship with migration and immigration has always been enmeshed with racism. Again, this is not an issue with right-wing politics in the UK. In fact, it's one of the things that the institutional left and the institutional right have been agreeing on since that post-World War, World War II moment. The go-back-home signs that greeted the Windrush generation, once again, supposedly British citizens, not immigrants, in the 40s and 50s, were simply painted on the side of vans by Theresa May when she was Home Secretary. Nigel Farage's leave speeches, stressing that the freedom of movement will suppress wages for the white workers in the UK, was exactly the same message that Labour were pushing in their 2010, I thought, that there was a, I thought that there was a photo of it, but I'm getting a flashback to my lecture. It's exactly the same message that Ed Miliband and Labour were pushing in 2010 when they said on their mugs, um, when they said on their mugs, controls on immigration, voting Labour. And indeed, even before Ed Miliband's campaign in 2010, um, the, the need to integrate immigrants, once again, citizens, was a key concern of New Labour under Tony Blair and the whole notion of community cohesion projects, because co community cohesion projects were targeted towards black and minority ethnic people. They weren't targeted towards the white Britons, were they? And even a key remainer, David Cameron, shared these concerns over immigration and integration. This is a quote which is hailed as the death of multiculturalism speech in 2011 at the Munich Security Conference. So you can already see how security, we're talking about immigration in a very funny way. Under the doctrine of state multiculturalism, we have encouraged different cultures to live separate lives and apart from each other and apart from the mainstream. We've even tolerated these segregated communities behaving in ways that run completely counter to our values. When equally unacceptable views or practices come from someone who isn't white, we've been too cautious, frankly, frankly even fearful, to stand, up to, them, to stand up to them. So we know exactly who he's talking about. He's talking about um, the Muslim diaspora in the UK. He isn't talking about the fact that the most segregated community in the UK is actually white Brits. So you can see that the way that he's talking about immigration and integration uh, is, is thoroughly to do with race, right? And I want to leave you with this comment. If even the key remainers were so firmly committed to treating immigrants and immigration as both social and economic problems of the state, why on earth was anyone surprised by the referendum result? It's the surprise, rather than the result, that is more interesting. 
And the surprise, once again, points us back to this fact that Britain is unwilling to truthfully discuss both our nation's history and our present in terms of imperialism, racism, and colonialism. Okay. Thank you, Ali. Um, again, these are issues we'll come back to, I'm sure. Um, so Bob Eagleston is Professor of Contemporary Literature and Thought at Royal Holloway, London, University of London. Um, he's written on a, a number of aspects of contemporary literature, and in particular, he has a book called Brexit and Literature, which brought together a variety of um, literary scholars, writers, and so on, thinking about this, this issue. So, Bob, thank you for coming. Thank you Over very to much. You. So there's a fantastic quotation from Salman Rushdie that uh, echoes exactly what Ali was, was just talking about. So one of his characters called Whiskey Sisodia says, uh, he has a stammer, he says, um, the, 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 the trouble with the English is their his, his history happened overseas, so they don't know what it means. Which is exactly what you talk about. So, um, so what I'm going to talk about is uh, interesting fits with what you said. I'm not going to talk about aspects of post-colonial melancholia, uh, except just towards the end. But I'm going to talk about um, contemporary literature and uh, identity. And I also want to talk about Catherine's paper. So one of the things that... Um, political scientists do, it's called surveys and all those kind of things, and your ethnography was getting beyond that. But of course, one of the things that literature wants to try and offer is, is a sense of what uh, Raymond Williams called the structures of feeling, okay? A sense of, of, of how we are and, and who we are and how things affect us, okay? So it's like, you know, when you go to uh, casualty and they ask you, please rate your pain one through 10, Okay, and you say, oh, six, I don't know, seven. Okay, what your answer is, is, is what kind of pain is it? Okay, or similarly, we all tick a, box, tick a box saying, I'm in love or I'm not in love. But that's not the interesting thing. It's like, who are you in love with? And what does it mean? Okay, so literature is, is kind of a way of trying to think about that. Now, I've only got three things to say, really, about literature and, and Brexit, like before, at, and after. Okay, so lots of literary scholars uh, said, oh, we were suddenly really surprised by Brexit. There was no tracking in, in literature of what might happen. But with retrospect, that's a fantastic way of dealing with things, we can see that in, in literature, the last 10, 15 years, there are all sorts of things that look kind of Brexity. Okay, so um, does anyone see Jez Butterworth's play Jerusalem? a hugely successful play in the West End, and a play, as you can tell from its title, kind of about England, okay? And the, the uh, main character is a guy called Johnny Rooster Byron, who's a kind of social outcast, but also a sort of hero. He doesn't do what he's told. It begins with petty officials asking him to turn his music down, okay? And in this play, the, the, the English figure, okay, Byron, doesn't fit into any of the, the rules. He gets increasingly isolated. And as he gets increasingly isolated, he turns to a kind of mystical England to give him power. So right at the end, he kind of evokes Gog and Magog, the two great giants that used to live in Albion. A weird kind of refusal of society. And we're invited, I have to say that when I saw it, I sided with the petty border officials at the beginning, but we're invited as the audience to find him a magnificent, heroic, kind of awkward squad figure. And that's kind of Brexity. There's also um, a book came out in 2015, The Buried Giant by Ishiguru. Okay, so this is an Arthurian myth, so straight away we're back in a kind of territory of, of England. 
Okay, but in this Arthurian world, the old couple uh, can't remember anything. They can't even remember their son. Okay, and they go out on an adventure to try and find their son. And they discover in this Arthurian Britain that everyone has forgotten everything. And they're kind of living together in a sort of simple kind of way. Uh, the Britons and the Saxons kind of living together. And they discover a Saxon warrior. And the Saxon warrior is there to kill a dragon. And the dragon is spewing out mist that makes everyone forget. Okay? Uh, and so the, the old uh, the guy, it turns out the, the old the man from the old couple had in fact been a, a negotiated this, this ceasefire which led then to the genocide of the Saxons and this warrior is ever revenge. They try to stop him killing the dragon, but the dragon is killed. And Winston the Saxon says, prophesies that the giant once buried now stirs and the friendly bond between us, that's the Saxons and the Britons, will prove as knots young girls make with the stems of small flowers. Men will burn their neighbours' houses by night, hang children from trees at dawn. The rivers will stink of corpses bloated from their days of voyaging. And country by country, this will become a new land, a Saxon land, with no more trace of your people here than a flock or two of sheep wandering the hills untended. So a sense of terrible kind of civil war, Okay, an engagement with memory. So I'll talk about memory a little bit as well. Uh, these are both kind of quite uh, high-end things. There's also a very interesting uh, Bernard Cornwell. Did anyone see Sharp on television? Okay, so Bernard Cornwell also wrote a series uh, still going on called The Last Kingdom. Uh, he wrote them there, set in the Anglo-Saxon times, and he said, I want to tell the story of how England came to be. And if you read these books, they're really, really gripping. I'm really sorry. They're not great literature, but they are very gripping. They go from 2004, the last one's out this week. It's buying supermarkets. It tells the story of, of uh, Alfred and the founding of England, okay, and the way in which one particular man, Uthred of Bamberg, recovers his, his uh, family's cultural, his family's seat, basically, a fortress in the northeast. Okay, and that came out in 2015. Now, that's also very Brexity. Okay, so foreigners are bad, the nasty Danes, okay, the nasty French and the heroic English, okay, it's tight kind of chthonic history. So in retrospect, all these things give you a sense of a swirling form of identity and problems with it. So when Brexit, when the referendum happened in 2015, straight away there were some responses. This is my uh, Brexit in the middle, okay, so there's... Um, Fantastic Ali Smith's wonderful season, seasonal quartet novels. Autumn came out, a novel about Brexit, a novel about openness, a novel about rejecting kind of uh, hate and Farageism. Okay? And there have been some other ones. Jonathan Coe's novel, Middle England, a classic state of the nation novel. Characters drawn like Dickens from across the, the nation without offering a kind of answer, but trying to understand what's going on. And then Amanda Craig's novel, The Lie of the Land. It's a lovely, charming domestic romance, okay, with some interesting Brexit things thrown in. So they're trying to address, trying to get down to what's, what, what the, uh, trying to Brexit, the issues that Brexit raises. So those are three instant kind of responses. But I think in the literature we're seeing right at the moment, uh, a whole array of interesting uh, other kinds of ways of facing what's happening to us. One of the things about novels, they take quite a long time to write, so you're not getting snap judgments the way you get with uh, journalists. But there's novels being written now that about five or six kind of areas. 
that seem to me to be really interesting. So one thing, of course, is, um, you touched this a little bit, the, the, the idea of people who are left behind. So there are novels being written about uh, the, the sort of uh, degradation of, of the country. Um, and one, it sounds very unusual, one by a man called Barney Farmer. Uh, it's a novel called Drunken Baker, which is uh, it's also a strip in the comic Viz. But the novel is like a Beckettian uh, a tragedy about these, it's a day, novel in a day, about these two bakers in a northern town whose business is collapsing. And it's absolutely bleak. And I really recommend it to you. I know it sounds funny, but it's just a, it's a really bleak novel about, you know, the collapse of Britain and people left behind. Just repeat the name of the, the author's oh, okay. title. It's by, it's Barney Farmer, Drunken Baker. Okay? But there's also a very short, weird novel by a man called Anthony Cartwright called The Cut that's set in Dudley. And again, it's about you know, life in a northern town and, uh, and the, the, the sign of isolation and loneliness. Okay, so these fictions coming out trying to help us think about Brexit. There's also stuff coming out about, um, you talked about the memory of the Second World War, so it's the thing I'm very interested in, uh, a sense of uh, how people think about the Second World War. So, I don't know if you know, but... Um, when I was a boy in the 70s, there was commando comics, which were all how we beat Germans, all very horrible nationalistic stuff. And they've, of course, been re-released. And there's this great mobilisation of Second World War memory. And, of course, it's not just Brexit. It's been going on for a long time. And it brings in all these emotions, OK? Uh, Second World War is activated by people like Farage because it's a sense of national anxiety. It creates an idea of a, a, a mystical idea of a shared common purpose and defiance in, and a sort of certainty. And you can see, particularly in, in a kind of boys' own adventure literature, all these ideas being activated, okay, about um, national identity. And, of course, that also creates a, a we, okay? And once you start creating a we, you create an, an other straight away, okay? That's like uh, Trump saying, well, where were the Kurds in Normandy? All right, so it's just strange creations of national identity. Um, but there's also lots of fiction which is about kind of the, the new, this new virulent nationalism. So Hannah Arendt talks about uh, what she calls tribal nationalism, a nationalism which is, is, uh, claims to be beyond parties, beyond political interests. Okay, it's hostile to the, system, to the government itself. It's, it's a belief in nation over a belief in state, it's not interested in the historical past. It's interested in the mythic past. It's not interested in, in a future policies. The Brexit Party website has no policies on it. Okay? It's not interested in future, future policies. Uh, it's not aligned with specific interests. Okay? Um, and, it, and it's kind of... It, it denies a kind of... Uh, sh our shared human responsibility. Okay? So it's not surprising this new vicious form of nationalism... Okay, is is uh, critical of ecological science. Okay, of shared responsibilities, and there's all and, and there are there are novels coming out that kind of reflect that. There's a superb short novel by Sarah Moss called Ghost War, which is about um, it's, it, the main narrator is Sylvia. She's a, she's the daughter of a man who's uh, obsessed by archaeology and like the the, the deep rooted history of Britain. Okay and they go on a dig with some archaeologists, and they go and try and live as Neolithic people, and, of course, it completely collapses. Uh, it's really short, but it's about exactly that kind of illusion 
of, of a kind of tribal English nationalism and the damage it can do. Really recommend that short novel to you. Sarah Moss. Sarah Moss's Ghost Wall. Um, I've lost track of my bits of paper now. Here we are. Two last things, two last things. So um, another response to Brexit in contemporary fiction going forward is a, an interesting return to thinking about the growth of fascism in the 1930s. Okay, so um, for example, there's Cressida Connolly's novel After the Party, which is set in the 30s, which is all about the hangers-on to Mosley. But even better, there's a novel I really recommend to you, Melissa Harrison's novel, um, All Among the Barley. Okay, so Mr. Ha Mr. Harrison is a, is a kind of contemporary nature writer, so it's set on a farm in the uh, 1920s, okay, and slowly on this farm, this uh, fantastic young girl narrator, um, slowly they meet a, a, a Mosleyite woman from London, come to preserve the, the, the rural traditions of the folk working class in, in the country, okay, and the novel um, explores that. Okay, in a really powerful way. I don't want to give any spoilers. I really recommend it. And it's clearly a novel about you know, where we are today and the rise of fascism and how seductive that can be. Okay? And the last thing I want to talk about is... Um, well, you talked about colonial nostalgia. I suppose I, I've written down uh, working through the past. Okay? So for, for about 30 or 40 years in contemporary English letters, there's been uh, a rise in what we call uh, post-colonial fiction. And that's quite a complicated phrase because you can be post-colonial in Birmingham just as much as you can be in Delhi or in uh, Rio, okay? Because empire is a complicated process. Um, and there have been lots of novels, this is my, my Salman Rushdie quote, you know, the English don't know what happened because it happened overseas. And there have been lots of novels which are about either set overseas or about the post-colonial situation in Britain. So there's uh, Andrea Levy's Small Island, um, I don't know if you, it was on TV and so on. Fantastic novel, again, about the war, but also about the experience of the, the end of empire. Um, and I think there are, this is a much longer than, thing than Brexit, but I think this, this idea of, of working through the imperial past, either in a way which bizarrely refused to work, refuses to work it through, where we get fantastic novels about, adventure novels very often about how great empire was, okay, an exotic locale to plague you know, children's games in the northern frontiers of India, okay? Or novels which try and expose and work through exactly that colonial legacy. So I think those are those, uh, well, those five things, working through the past, the rise of fascism, responding to this uh, new form of vicious nationalism, the memory of the Second World War, and the kind of left behind. So these, these I think there's lots of fiction exploring these kind of five areas uh, in a way which is kind of both ignited by Brexit, but also carrying on some of the themes that came before. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Bob. Thank you for that. And again, connections with uh, some of the other speakers as well. So I, I, Dr. Aisa Zarakol is a reader in international relations in the Polis Department here in Cambridge and also a fellow at Emmanuel College. And um, her books include Hierarchies in World Politics, um, which was a runner-up for uh, a prestigious uh, International Studies Association prize uh, this year. Um, now, she's going to talk about how the rest of the world uh, views Britain with regard to Brexit, 
uh, slightly tall order in eight minutes. But anyway, <laughs> Isa, thank you very much, and over to you. Thank you. So the discussion until now has been focused on how um, Brexit is experienced within Britain. But I was given the task of looking at how the rest of the world views Britain uh, in light of Brexit. Uh, and that's what I will aim to do in broad strokes. But first, I want to say something about my own background, because it has some bearing on uh, what I'm going to say. Um, I was born in uh, Turkey. I grew up in Istanbul uh, until I left uh, when I was 17 to go to the university in the US. Uh, and I was in the US until 2013 uh, when I came here to take up this post. Uh, so I, you know, I've been witnessing all the highlights of British politics from the Scottish referendum to today's vote uh, up close. Um, but you could say, I mean, the reason I mentioned this is because uh, I spent many years of my life living in a country where half of the population was desperately trying to get into the EU, but couldn't. And now I'm living in a place where half of the population <laughs> is uh, desperately trying to get out, but can't. So um, I, I want to think a little bit about what it means that some countries are uh, trying to get into the EU, and Britain has done this thing that go, seems to go against that. What does that mean for how Britain is perceived? So in international relations, we say the international system is made up of uh, a sovereign states who are supposed to be equal to each other uh, in terms of international law. They have equal standing. But in reality, um, international politics is characterized by all sorts of hierarchies, which is one of the things I study. You know, there are hierarchies between great powers and small states, between rich countries and poor countries. And one of the main hierarchies, I would say, that has characterized international politics since at least the 19th century is a, is a social or status hierarchy between, between the West and the non-West, between the West and the rest of the world, uh, where being Western comes with certain status privileges, material and immaterial. Um, it was especially the case in the past, uh, but even today, the West occupies kind of a central place in our international thinking. We are more aware of its problems, its accomplishments, and so on. I guarantee you that uh, you know, people in Japan, which is on paper a richer country than the UK, have thought more about Brexit and British politics than anybody, even in this room, has thought about you know, Japanese politics in the last few years. So that's uh, what I'm getting at when I talk about a status hierarchy. Uh, and because of the privileged position the West has occupied in the international order for the last centuries, and because at the core of that Western identity was a European identity, and because how you define being European is not set in stone, uh, for countries to the east of uh, the European Union, joining the European Union was uh, always more about identity and belonging and status than it was uh, about uh, material privileges. There is this idea that you know, Eastern, Europeans joined, Eastern European countries joined the EU because they were getting amazing material rewards. But if you talk to, you know, for instance, Romanians, uh, they will tell you long and sad stories about you know, the impact <laughs> EU membership has had on their agricultural sector. But I think most of them thought it was uh, worth the trade-off because, at least at the time, it signaled that you know, they were no longer post-communist or Eastern European, but a proper European country. This was a way of securing this Western identity. 
similarly, you know, the Greek government ignored the overwhelming uh, majority of you know, the Greek citizens in the referendum because it was unthinkable in that part of the world to leave the EU. I mean, what's Greece going to do, hang out with Turkey? I mean, it's, it's unthinkable, right? So, and you know, last week, Kosovo and North Macedonia, they were bitterly disappointed after all they've done you know, to get vetoed by France. So if you look at it from that perspective, you know, perspective of status and belonging and identity, what Britain has done, in a way, could be thought of as you know, the ultimate power move. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like saying, I'm so secure in my Western identity and my core uh, status in the international system that I don't need to belong to a club to have it confirmed. It's like a, you know, an individual saying, you know, I'm, I'm so posh, like I don't need to belong to a, um, a members club, or I'm so smart, like I don't need to go to Cambridge to have it, you know, com you know my intellect recognized. Uh, people will respect, you know, and desire me. Uh, anyway, so that kind of, it's in a way, you know, signaling to the world that kind of confidence in your own abilities. So I think from an international relations perspective, this is really what uh, Brexit is going to test. Uh, this assumption of British centrality to, to world politics. I think the, the economic uh, deals, issues, you know, the trade deals, everybody, we're all worried about it, I'm worried about it too, but these will sort themselves out with the rest of the world because it's in everybody's interest. You know, it's you know, uh, Turkish you know, citrus producers want to sell stuff to Britain. A way will be found. So uh, that's not the concern. It's more uh, about uh, Britain's status and standing, you know, is cool Britannia really cool enough to stand alone? Can it still attract the unwritten uh, privileges of, you know, the European brand? And I think there are very good reasons to be concerned about how the UK is going to be uh, perceived post-Brexit. Uh, and these reasons have much more to do with how Brexit was handled or mishandled and the continuous chaos around the decision than the actual decision to leave the EU. Mm. Um, I mean, I did not support Brexit myself, but there's an argument to be made that had it been planned <laughs> properly and managed, uh, the UK could have left the EU with minimal damage to its reputation and standing. Uh, I mean, there are very justified complaints about you know, British expansionism and colonialism historically, but the British image <laughs> in the rest of the world uh, was not one of uh, incompetence uh, and dithering. You know, so, um, so uh, if your country has historically been at the receiving end of you know, British interventions, as Turkey has been and many other places, the last thing you want to believe is, is that Britain is kind of a shambolic place. You, know, you, uh, you want to believe that you, know, you were bested uh, because these people knew what they were doing. And, and these types of you know, notions have very long shadows. You know, you know, like your interaction may have been a century ago, but my grandmother would call good quality fabric English fabric. I mean, I think coming, this must date back to 19th century. So once people have an impression, you know, though, unless challenged, those impressions uh, are, uh, are with you for a while. So what, what I'm trying to say is people around the world may not have liked the UK, but they respected it. Uh, what the Brexit process has done is to dispel this notion that politics here are considerably better run um, and by more qualified people than elsewhere. Um, and the disillusionment is further amplified by the fact that the United States has decided to go off the rails at the, <laughs> at the same time. Uh, and for many people around the world, the impressions of the US and UK are intimately linked. Uh, uh, so the chaos in the UK over Brexit 
coupled with the chaos in the United States because of Trump, uh, they, they're amplifying you know, each other and creating the impression that there are no grown-ups in the house that we call the West. The Brexit process has allowed people to see behind the curtain. And as somebody from Turkey and somebody who studies you know, politics of the places like Russia, I'm not going to say you know, that it's the worst political mess I've seen. But I will say it is very familiar. <laughs> and the, the familiarity is kind of an indictment uh, for uh, British image going forward. Thank you. Thank you, Isa. Uh, it reminds me of what you were saying, reminds me of a comment of uh, an Italian colleague of, uh, who, after a year or two of the, um, you know, the Bermuda Triangle and Brexit. He said, uh, he said, David, I never thought you would do your politics the way we do. <laughs> um, so some interesting issues, um, a wide range of approaches, and that's part of what, as I said, we want to do with the Festival Ideas. Let me start with one question to all of you, which kind of goes to the heart of our title in a way, and you've skirted around it in your eight minutes. Identity and belonging in post-Brexit Britain. Are you talking about Britain, or are you talking about England? And what is the relationship between English identity and British identity? Is there a British identity? Would anybody like to kind of come in and, and kick that around a little bit? Because part of what has often been said by, a number of, by many commentators is to a significant extent the cutting edge of Brexit is some kind of English separatism which is directed both towards the continent, uh, evoking that sense that the White Cliffs of Dover are a profound border in a way that isn't true if you think of the marches of Wales or the, um, you know, the borders of Scotland, and also the feeling that actually um, the English uh, who are pushing Brexit, many of them actually don't care very much about the rest of the UK, Scotland, uh, Ireland and um, Northern Ireland. Indeed, if, uh, if we suddenly now got a border in the Irish Sea, not surprisingly, the DUP feels it's been uh, left high and dry. So any feelings about that? What is the identity that we're talking about here? Bob, do you want to kick off? Well, I, was, I think what I was talking about is explicitly an English identity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so those Bernard Cornwell books are, mm. are about Englishness and lots of things in the Buried Giant are kind of about Englishness. Um, so one of the things that's happened in contemporary literature, which has been fantastic, has been a kind of um, an uh, a raise of the, of the different uh, countries within the UK. So uh, Milkman won the, book of, uh, won the Booker Prize last year, Northern Irish fiction, has a huge growth in, in Scottish fiction, has its own departments and so on now. So the fiction that I was concentrating on, uh, as it were, is the counterbalance to the post-colonial uh, sense that you were talking about uh, was profoundly English and I do think that, that Brexit is, is a uh, I, mean, I agree with your analysis that Brexit is, is driven by a kind of English nationalism and it and has turned out to be quite anti-Scots, it's turned out to throw Northern Ireland under the bus, you know I don't know what it thinks about the Welsh but I mean, it's kind of it, it, I, certainly from the strand that I was trying to write was a very much an English thing mm. in the sense that there may not even be a British identity Right. Okay. Yeah. 
one of the best predictors for whether someone voted leave or remain, if they voted leave, it was mostly you identify as English rather than British or more English than I am British. But I think that, once again, it kind of highlights this deep contradiction in Britain's understanding of this colonial nostalgia because there's this deep contradiction in the Little England narrative because England was never little. So if you go back to this mm. kind of World War II imagery, it's like, England survived, did you see this in the news? England survived World War II. We can survive Brexit. And it was like, you survived World War II, first of all, using troops, you know, who were taken from your colonies. So that wasn't a very little England. That was a very global, global England. Um, and secondly, the capital that they exploited and stole from the colonies was what paid for the military. So just India alone, nine billion pounds worth of capital was stolen from India and taken to the UK. And that's one, that, that's one colony, right? Just India. So I think that Brexit, once again, is a really good example of this colonial nostalgia in the way that when English identity or little England-ness is evoked for, for the Leave campaign, now I also appreciate that it was used for Remain, but when it's used for Leave, it once again symbolizes that kind of deep misunderstanding of our history and this mm. idea that we were once this tiny little island separated from the rest of the world, um, like the quote you were talking about yeah. from, from Kipling. Yeah. Yeah. I said, do you want to come in on any of this? I will just observe that in many other languages, there's no way of making this distinction. Mm. Yeah, Between I mean, England and Britain, you yes. mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. Yeah. Which is because Britain, in a sense, was a, a project of English imperialism, yeah. in the sense of controlling the rest of the islands because it was felt, well, uh, desirable in terms of resources and necessary in terms of security and so on. Just one more question before we open up. What is the, is the assumption behind our discussion that there is, people have a single sense of identity there? Or is, is, are there many kinds of identity? Because I don't have a problem feeling definitely English. I've been told by many French friends, you know, I, David, you are incorrigibly English, which I take as a compliment. But I'm, I, I'm quite clear I'm British, and that doesn't preclude me from thinking I'm European. Now, we've got a large audience, and I'm sure there are plenty of questions. Um, so we have two microphones, roving mics. So if you could put your hands up if you want to talk and then if you and then wait till the mic comes and ask a question, please not um, do a speech. <laughs> uh, so sat down here, yes. Thank you, lady here. Hi, thanks very much. Really enjoyed all the different talks. Can I just ask each of you, do you feel optimistic or pessimistic about the divisions that have opened up in the country based on each of your different research papers? Okay, so that's a good one to start with, a quick one maybe. So, um, Isa, do you want to start at the end there? Uh, neither. neither. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I mean, as I said, I'm, I'm familiar with, you know, Turkish politics, American politics, and so on, and I, I know that once this type of polarization happens, they, it doesn't go away easily. Uh, at the same time, you know, you can, you can kind of live with it, <laughs> and of, of, the, of the context I know, I would say Britain is, you know, slightly better off for various reasons, at least thus far. So, yeah, that's what I would say. Good. Pessimistically, for two reasons, one of them is that what I was talking about in, in that, um, what do we call them, papers? 
are we calling these presentation, talks, talks, presentation, chat, the mm. chat where I mentioned about the rising levels of hate crime. And what I think is interesting is that when you see that spike in hate crime post uh, 2016, it wasn't the people who we were voting about in terms of freedom of movement. So one of the places targeted was a Caribbean kind of social club in Liverpool. And it's like, this has got nothing to do with the EU. So there's that. And then it also widens the gap structurally. So not just between like individual acts of violence, but in the sense that, for instance, you know, almost 50% of black children in, in London are living in poverty. Um, that you're more likely to be unemployed or insecurely employed if you're a black or minority ethnic person in the UK. Those are kind of structural things that are not to do with individuals, that's to do with the way our structure works. And if we're economically weaker, it's going to target those people first before it affects the people who actually voted for Brexit in the first place, the white middle class southerners. Okay, thank you, Bob. So you've put me in a difficult position. So I think, speaking as a kind of citizen, I feel extremely pessimistic. Uh, and I hear what you're saying about not being too worried compared to other countries, but I do feel that it's a very bad time. But conversely, speaking as a literary critic, the, the um, it's you know, a bonanza, right? Yeah, well, yes. there's, 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 lots of, there's lots of stuff being written, which is at last focusing on issues that you're talking about and not just post-colonial fiction, but drawing in all sorts of things. People are trying to address things that haven't been addressed before mm. and doing it in quite interesting kinds of ways. So on the one hand, that's quite an interesting thing. And I also, I can't quote the line from King Lear, but like uh, the line is something like, you know, it's not, the, it's not the worst because we can say it's not the worst. So one thing that you notice from really totalitarian regimes is they have no literature, mm. yeah? So as long as there's writers and stuff writing and talking and things like this going on, then it's, then it's I've got grounds for optimism. Right. So where there's a festival of ideas, there's hope. Yes. I, you know, I, I think there is something about that, yeah, actually. Right. Good. Next, next question. Is there someone, um, another front row one on this side? Yes. Hey, I would, thank you very much for the talk. I was just wondering, you've talked a lot about how, I guess, the Brexit result came out of a uniquely British sense of identity, uh, English or British sense of identity, a British imperial history and mythology surrounding that. But I was wondering to what extent other European countries could be viewed in the same way, in the sense that they also have tensions with their European identity, and to what extent that's related to uniquely individualized histories, if that makes sense. So is that to anybody particularly, or to anybody want to contribute on that? So Britain wasn't the only European power imperial power, right? Um, so other European countries have really similar kind of histories of imperialism where the imperialism isn't really interrogated. So if you want to think about France, it's like super clear in France, you still collect a colonial tax, right? So um, just as we just finished paying off basically slave owners to our tax in 2016 or 2015 or 2016 to our tax, France is still charging their former colonies for having emancipation, right? For having freedom. So you see that exactly the same problems in France and when in Europe, and which is why one of the greatest predictors of Euroscepticism now in European countries is this issue of Turkey joining the EU and how that's going to be like, it shows the Islamophobia, right? We don't want Muslims coming into, the, into Europe. It's also important not to think about it just in terms of the UK and Europe, because we've already talked about US and Trump and the right-wing populism there. Bolsonaro in Brazil is super interesting as well because they have that colonial history, but he's not speaking from a person He's not speaking from the country that was the colonizer, but the colonized. 
but he still has this misunderstanding of imperialism and colonialism because he's saying we should go back to our European roots, right? He's saying that this land doesn't belong to indigenous Brazilians. So once again, we can, we can see how colonial, um, misunderstandings of colonial histories is not uniquely European. It's Chinese, it's Japanese, it's in the US, it's in, it's in Latin America. Anybody else want to come in? Um, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't study European politics, so I don't have you know, survey data and so on, but uh, my general sense is that despite your skepticism also being a thing in continental Europe and also you know, imperial past being a thing in continental Europe, there, there is much, uh, there's a greater buy-in to the idea of Europeanness and the EU, I think. I mean, what I see, like when I travel in Europe, I, I travel on an American passport, I, you know, it says all passports and EU passports or European passports. And I often see British people going to the all passports <laughs> queue rather than EU or European passports. And this was, this was a thing before you know, Brexit. So I think there are people in, the, in this country who don't think of themselves uh, as European at all, which is something you, don't, you, don't, you wouldn't find, uh, I think, in continental Europe or at least Western Europe. Just a quick response, for, if I may. I, I think part of the point is also that the, um, the European project at its core was driven by six countries who had, in one way or another, who needed to move on from the Second World War because it was a total disaster for them. France, West Germany, Italy, and the Benelux countries. Uh, the perception in this country was we won the Second World War. We don't need to move on. We don't need to get involved with that project, which is essentially by the, you know, the losers. Uh, and so there's, I think there's a, a fundamental historical issue there. Um, sorry. But, but there is kind of footnote to that. One of the things I think is really interesting, and I thought about again during your paper, is that when you think about how the German state has tried to work through its Nazi past, mm -hmm. and you think if only there had been a, uh, a similar social, political, intellectual effort in the UK to work through its imperial past, okay, and I'm not making equivalences, I'm just saying there's a pro project of working through the past, which involves facing it and being kind of honest, mm. I think we find ourselves in a very different kind of state. Meaning that we would then understand the really complex legacies of, of the imperial era. For, for example, so, um, when I talk to my uh, first-year students, I say, do you know who Clive of India is? And they have no idea. And they have no idea why it is that India was part of the British Empire at all. It's, kind of, it's a total gap in their kind of knowledge. And so that, that's not even working through. That's just like starting to explain. Um, um, and I'm sure you've... I mean, I'm sure everyone has similar kind of stories. Yeah, about I mean, the, the history that is, is taught is essentially a very narrow uh, interpretation of our island story in the, you know, the notorious phrase or notorious book, focused on England rather than the, the whole of the, the archipelago. And also, as you, everybody's emphasised in a way, that you know, the, if we talk about the empire, it's about how we made the empire without any sense of how the empire has made us and changed us and so on. Okay, another question. Another question from somewhere else, maybe somewhere at the back. Ah, yes, good, thank you. I like the literary analogies, and obviously at this precise moment we don't know whether we'll be in or out, but I'm just wondering about which 
novel or whatever best fits your views on whether it's in and out? Is it utopia? Is it 1984? <laughs> or is it the Charles Dickens workhouse? Well, that seems to be a question for you. What's that? Bob, do you want to? Okay, so um, again, that's a really that's a really good question. So I, uh, and again, I, I I'm quite pessimistic. So I reread 1984 uh, about 18 months ago, uh, and um, you know maybe it won't be that bad. But there's 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 lots of things out afoot. There's lots of things afoot. You know, our phones watch us. Okay, we live in a in a um, you know we, we live in, a, in an increasingly scary kind of place, increasing increased violence, astonishing polarization. So I, I feel I feel a bit 1984. What about Second Sleep, Robert Harris's Second Sleep? Do you know I, I I haven't read Second Sleep, but I've read the novel it I've read the novel it stole itself from. Oh, I've read uh, Canticle for Leibovitz, which is an astonishing science fiction novel, which is based. Um, has the same premise, mm -hmm. which is based in the sense that uh, there are monks surviving about a thousand years from now, and all the science has gone, and they still use a kind of weird scientific language. Um, but that's that's different because that at least has a kind of tradition and a sense of thought, and and that they rediscover science. Mm. I don't know what happens in the second sleep. Well, you have to read it. Yeah. I'm only halfway through, so that's right. Catherine, did you want to come in on that, or you? Uh, no, no, no I, 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 you know. I, okay, so yeah. 1984. This is back to the optimism, pessimism, will, and uh, and intellect thing. Any questions? Any more questions? Yes, lady here. Oh, uh, one down here, and then the lady up there. Fine. Thank you. Generally, picking up a kind of pessimism as the overall theme, um, but can you make any suggestions of things you'd like to see that might put us on a better road for the future? Any suggestions for project or things that can be done to improve the, the situation? I think also what you were talking about in terms of Germany's ability to discuss its past. So you know, yeah. um, visiting a concentration camp or something. So. Increasing the education, but also going beyond these kind of really simple binaries that plague our society. So this idea that if you're working class, you're racist, and if you're middle class, you're liberal, when the data shows that the majority of people who voted for Brexit were in fact middle class. Um, going beyond simple binaries like that, having a, I don't know how to do this without going into 1984, but having some kind of accountability in the media so that you don't get lies and myths and false constructions about the problems of immigration in British society. Um, because it's like the same people who are saying that we should send immigrants back home are the people that then end up in hospital and they need to be served by people like my family and other families who work in the NHS, but are part of this diaspora that's come to the, to the UK, right? We are completely rude wording up our institutions, because the media, left, right, and centre, are dedicated to this idea that immigration is a problem that needs to be curtailed, rather than something that we should promote, mm. and something that we actually have an obligation to be doing because of our history of going to other places and rude wedding up their countries. Yeah. Yeah, Isa, did you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I would say about the international image, I mean, what really strikes me from, since the beginning of this is how much of the debate proceeded as if it was just an internal debate among you know, British people, which it is, of course, I mean, it's mostly about you know, Britain, but I mean, the, the thing is, 
you know, English is a language everybody can speak. I mean, which is an advantage when you, you go around the world, you can talk to anybody and get by. But that also means people everywhere can read English papers and can follow the debate, can hear what uh, British politicians are saying. Uh, so there needs to be some kind of an awareness that you know what's being discussed here, like the whole world is watching. And I mean, I think that that would go some ways to improving that having that awareness uh, would go some ways to improving the image. I, I've got two things. So one is I came this morning from I came from the demonstration in London. So going out and being seen, not necessarily about Brexit, but about stuff. And two, and I can hear my teenage self shouting at me. Um, one of the things that the Brexiteers are, are do, or keen to do, is to sweep away all our institutions, okay? So, so and we're all involved with all sorts of institutions, you know, uh, hospitals and universities and judiciary and newspapers and churches and schools and, uh, you know, uh, temples, all sorts of things. So get involved in institutions and stop them being swept away. Th those would be my two, my two kind of things. Okay, I'd just like to add, and since I plugged everybody else's books, I have <laughs> Island Stories is coming out in the, in the, on the 31st of October. And at the end of that, I say, I think we have to um, accept that what we have gone through, are going through, is a trauma, a national trauma. And that means being doing the kind of things we're doing now, taking stock of ourselves, asking serious questions, not denying things that are good about this country, but also saying there is a whole lot of things we've brushed under the carpet, possibly as the price of victory ever since 1945. And trauma, if you approach in that way, can be an opportunity. It can be an opportunity to say, okay, let's move on. We've made a bit of a fool of ourselves in the world, uh, as Ice has pointed out. Um, but let's, you know, there's much in this country we could deal with if we are more honest about where we've come from then we can start to think more clearly about where we're going. So it, and that, that depends, it does depend to a significant extent on leadership, but it also can come from, you know, this kind of thing. I mean, people just say, okay, maybe I don't like the outcome of what's happened. You know, I voted Remain, I voted Leave, you know, it's messy and so Okay, we are now in this situation. How are we going to move on in a creative way? And it seems to me that's important as, as well. Okay. Uh, another question. Oh, the lady up there, I'm sorry, yes. Um, referring to national identity and what you said about Turkey and religious identity, and particularly in the light of the, the new uh, Johnson uh, agreement with Europe, do you think perhaps we haven't, as a nation, reconciled our Protestant-Catholic divisions, not just because of Northern Ireland? I know I've done interviews with Brexiteers, and they refer to the number of small Catholic nations joining the EU, uh, Europe, the fear they have that these small Catholic nations may deliberate through the European Court of Justice, say, on women's rights. Do you think perhaps we don't need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but perhaps through something like citizens' assemblies, reforming and discovering who we are? I'd have a quick note on yes, the okay, Protestant stuff, yeah, because... Yeah, I think what's interesting now is that whilst it used to be we're Protestant, they're X, Y, or Z, now it's kind of we're secular, they're Islamist, which is what you see with the mm. Turkey thing. Um, it doesn't work for Ireland. Mm. But um, that is kind of like the key binary, and it's one of the binaries that, because we keep talking about legacies of empire, mm. and I think one of the greatest myths is that decolonization of countries 
led to kind of the absence of a colonial form of power. So in sociology, we talk about coloniality rather than colonialism, because colonialism is like an administrative procedure that states go through, whereas coloniality describes balances of power. And if you think about what we're doing, in, for example, with military intervention in the Middle East, one of the, the, and, and the war on terror at home and abroad, um, one of the narratives that's used to justify that is this idea of the battle against Islamism and this close relationship between religion and politics and Islam and states. So I think that now one of the key binaries which Brexit kind of picks out on when they discuss we don't want Sharia law coming to the UK, that's Nigel Farage as well, right? Um, is this divide between secularism and, and Islamism. Okay, that's interesting. Thank you. I think we've probably got time for one more question. The lady there with the, in the white... Um... Uh, I'd just like to say I'm, I'm strongly Remain, but I do feel that the discussion hasn't commented on a number of things which I've read in the press as important. For example, that a lot of people voted leave because they, it was a protest vote against the government. They never necessarily thought it would happen. They just wanted to protest and feel that they weren't being listened to. And I think also the practicalities. For example, you said Boston had the highest vote. Well, it has huge numbers of seasonal workers, and I think they probably felt swamped. Um, so I just think it's not looking at people voting from their experience rather than racism. And I would just say that in our church... The, the people who felt most strongly leave were actually a group of Indian doctors who were first generation but felt that there were enough immigrants in the country already. So I, I just think to, to, to break it down to race is too simplistic. You've also got to remember it was at the time when there were huge, on the TV every day, were thousands and thousands of immigrants coming from all over the place. And also the euro had completely crashed in Greece. I just think there are two, lots of other factors and that Britain isn't necessarily that racist. I'm not denying there is a, an element, but it's not the main factor necessarily. Okay, so Ali, I think quick last word. Okay, very quickly. No one discussed about individual racists. We were discussing this kind of institutional presence of it. One of the institutional, just in a way that you can have, this comes back to the Indians voting for Brexit. You can have black policemen in the US. It doesn't mean that the US police force isn't institutionally racist, right? But anyway, we weren't talking about individual racists. We were talking about a general structure of racism. One of the byproducts of this general structure is what we call a kind of epistemology of ignorance, which isn't an absence of knowledge, but it's kind of um, a very specific way of looking at the world which erases certain kinds of histories. So the people that were voting for a protest vote, isn't that a kind of ignorance? Because the people that were doing protest votes were people that are listened to quite a lot by the state. So we can see that certain people think that they don't have respect and they don't have recognition. Those are often the very same people that do have respect and recognition. So that comes back to kind of this epistemology of ignorance. So I would say that while none of us, I assume, are labeling Brexit voters racist, just as you were saying, we're seeing Brexit as the outcome of this institutional, historical, into the contemporary presence of a structure of racism. Okay, well, uh, there's obviously many more things we could talk about, but uh, thank you all for coming, and may we finally give a warm round of thanks to our panellists.